glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, turn to Hebrews 12 now, if you would. The word stray or astray is not used here, but the concept of correction is very clear in Hebrews chapter 12. Let me warn you of people who would take Hebrews 12 and say this does not apply to you as a child of God. That This, is, this was written to Hebrews who had, um, who had their national origin in Abraham and there were those among them. They like to take you to do a lot of things in the book of Hebrews. Uh, anytime that someone gets really fancy with explaining away Bible, you and I need to get our guard up. Now, I understand we never need to take Bible out of context, but... Even as we, I believe there's great value in studying the languages behind the, the, the languages that the Bible has given him, but you have to be careful. Because here's what we do not have today we have no original manuscripts of the Bible. So you have to be careful trusting people who tell you what I'm telling you is exactly what it said in the originals. No one has the original documents. We understand we have original languages. We don't have the original documents, and Satan's work caused a lot of confusion. How many of us know, though, it's a, it's a favorite trick of the flesh to say, if I don't like what it says in English, I just say, well, it means something different in the originals. It is. Now, listen, it's a, it's a trick, and you've got to be careful to not avoid what God has plainly said to us. The greatest, the greatest tool you have in your Bible study today is what? What's your greatest Bible study tool? The Bible, number one, but beyond the Bible, the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest tool. You have the author living in your heart. And I believe today I, I hear a lot of what other... I'm a preacher, so I, I, I interact with a lot of the preachers. I listen to what they say, and, and many of them are tremendous blessings. But at times we run across preachers who have so focused on preaching God's Word and studying God's Word as an intellectual art rather than a spiritual work, that if we're not careful what we say is to get anything out of the Bible, you have to be an extremely highly educated scholar. That's not what the Bible itself teaches. And what we would be led to believe is because of where the Bible is today, uh, because of the English and the difficulty or impossibility of transmitting Hebrew Greek into English, you really have to be a real scholar to get the things of God. And these are generally the kind of folks that are going to explain away the application of the book of Hebrews, what we understand is the book of Hebrews is written to, to believers, Hebrew believers, no doubt. And so there's Hebrew application, but there's application to you and I as the children of God. There's, I'll, I'll warn against one of the camp. There's, there's, there are, there's a camp of people who, who love to emphasize to too much of a degree the King James Bible, and then they get all hung up in what I'll call hyper-dispensationalism, meaning they see a new dispensation in the Bible about every 20 pages. It seems like I'm making that number up. But, you know, the, Jesus was in a different dispensation, and so everything written in the Gospels doesn't really apply to you and I. And then when you get in the book of Acts, it's kind of in a different dispensation. That doesn't apply. And Hebrews and James doesn't apply because that was written to dispensational Hebrews. And when you start doing that, you are abusing Scripture. And so there's two sides to this. There's the scholarly side that, that ends up allegorizing the Bible and dismissing Scripture. And then there are these over here that, that claim to love our, our English Bible. And yet when we're all said and done, by the time you're done, much of it doesn't apply to you. And so just be careful. Be, trust the Holy Spirit of God. 
and, and give, they give you discernment, and you say, what's this have to do with our message tonight? Well, you're going to read people, including some very popular people in our day, who's going to say, no, Hebrews 12 was mistranslated. God would never scourge his children. God is a God of love, and he would never scourge his children. Yet that's exactly what the Bible says. <laughs> Amen? It is what the Bible says. And they like to, they, they, they play with the Bible. They go over here and say, well, a scourging is like what Jesus got with the cat of nine tails, and that's what Hebrews 12 is talking about. How many of you have ever thought, when you read Hebrews 12, God was saying that a loving father would take a cat of nine tails and whip his child? That has never crossed my mind. But it crossed another author's mind so much as to say, so there's no way it means what the Bible says. So you find somebody telling you that what the Bible plainly does say, doesn't say. Just, 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 just look out. Amen. And so as we dive into Hebrews 12, I didn't mean to introduce us to all kinds of wrong ideas, but I know this. We're in an information age. And I was talking with another, uh, some, some, well, I was talking to Brother Norton this week, and we both have experienced people we're trying to serve and minister to, and they get on the Internet, and then you can't help them with the Bible anymore because they find the, any answer you want on the Internet about the Bible's out there. If you want the Bible to say something, you'll find someone to tell you that's what it says. And so remember, your greatest aid studying the Bible is the Holy Spirit of God, and, uh, and God willing, it's the way it should be, your local New Testament church. Amen? And so Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 5, we're talking about going astray. The Bible says this to these folks, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This is how we know we're talking about Christians. We're talking about children of God. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, for, uh, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous nevertheless. Afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your this is the verse that brings us to this text tonight. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And so we'll come back to those verses here in a minute, but here's what I would like to say. When it comes to God's children straying, God our Heavenly Father, His response to the child that goes astray is not abandonment, but chastisement. We need to get that in our hearts and our minds. God the Father's response to a child who goes astray is chastisement, not abandonment. This is the difference between believing that we're saved by grace or kept by grace and kept by works. What the Armenian thought would teach is that if you stray from the path of rectitude, you stray off of of the path of holiness, then you have abandoned God and therefore you are abandoned of God. That when you do that, you actually you lose the Holy Spirit, you lose your salvation, and yet the Bible says that what God's response to His children who stray, the word is not stray, but if we have to make straight paths for our feet, what's that tell us? We were taking a, what kind of path? 
a crooked path, one that veered off the course of his will for our lives. And so uh, his response is not abandonment. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, he said. Did he not? Instead, his response is chastisement. With that in mind, I just wanted to establish the foundation. Number one, a child of God can go astray. And when we go astray, undoubtedly there's going to be chastisement to bring us back into fellowship with God. We need to know how to respond to that. But there are some some principles throughout the Bible. The concept of going astray is mentioned. So I believe this. Whether we're dealing with someone who has ultimately strayed from God and is ultimately astray, meaning... Christ is not their shepherd. He is not, uh, he's not their savior as of yet. They've not turned to him by faith. They're still on the path to hell. Okay. So they, they're ultimately astray or the child of God that goes astray. I think there are some common denominators as to the cause. Uh, uh, and this is not exhaustive, I'm sure, but there are some things in the Bible that specifically name this is why these people went astray. There are some causes that we go astray. There are some things that get us off of the path of, of righteousness, the path of holiness, the path that God, the course that is set before us, all right? Uh, there is a course, by the way, set before us in our conscience when we're born. So to go astray is to veer off of what we know is the right path as a sinner. Every human being will. All we like sheep have gone astray. Now, to stray means we, the, the Bible word of sin is to miss the mark in Romans chapter 3 meaning you have veered off course. And so it is the inherent nature. Here's what I want to deal with tonight first. The cause for going astray is it is in our nature to stray. It's in our nature to stray. My question for you, another doctrinal question tonight uh, that we need to be able to process as Christians. Uh, when you get saved, did you get a new nature? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Second Peter 1 tells us that we are partakers of the divine nature. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a New creature, old things are passed away, behold, all things become new. question is, do you still have to deal with your old nature? Now, there are those who would teach that upon salvation, there's the eradication of the old nature, meaning you don't have the old nature anymore. It's gone. Now, if that's true, I'm confused, right? And so should they be, because you and I both know that it's possible to be saved and still be tempted. It's not only possible to be saved and tempted, it's possible to be saved and sin. And anyone that teaches you that it's not is a liar. That's what First John says. If a man say, I have not sinned, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. And so then, tonight, the fact is, it is our inherent nature to sin. What do we call it when we have a propensity to long for what is forbidden? Meaning, God says, this is the way. Tell the truth and only the truth, we think. There must be something good about telling a lie then. <laughs> If, I, if God wants me to be truthful, then there must be some benefit in lying or he wouldn't forbid it, right? It's called the lust or lust of concupiscence. That natural longing for what is forbidden. When you leave tonight, you can leave by any door you want, but don't leave by this one. And immediately somebody's thinking, how can I leave by that door to find out why he said not to? Right? I mean, that's, that's our nature. That's why Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. It is in our nature. Some have a heavier dose, I suppose, than others of enjoyment in straying. But the truth is, it is human nature to want to go apart from the path laid out in front of us. It is inherent in us to want to stray. Therefore, for the child of God, we have to deal with that natural propensity. That's why we're told to walk circumspectly. There are too many other alternate courses than the will of God for our lives to take that there's going to be a temptation to take 
And so we have to intentionally, with, with purpose and with, with, uh, with diligence, walk in the path that God has laid out in front of us. Otherwise, we will stray. It is our nature. It's inherent in our nature to stray. But let me ask you this. Is there anything ever done that, that, that pulls us, that draws us? So it's inherent in our nature to veer off course. But is there anything to intentionally draw us off course? So here's the will of God. This is the will, the will of God expressed through the Word of God. And we can fill in blanks as to what that would be as far as some examples. But God communicates His will for us as His children. Uh, he would have us not... So, for instance, we get saved. We're told, put off the old man, covetousness and uncleanness and fornication and adultery and idolatry uh, and, and, and evil speaking and blasphemy. All those things we put off, That's those decisions and those actions and attitudes are not part of God's course for our life, yet they appeal to us. And what draws us toward those things is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. In Scripture, we find that in the Old Testament, there were people who were consecrated to the service of God. They were consecrated to live their lives a certain way. The Levites, yet, they went astray. God had outlined how He wanted them to live. He had outlined to them how He wanted them to serve. Yet, you find the Levites at some point in time giving their hearts to something other than God. Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel chapter 44 the Bible says, and Matt, here's all I want to say, the things of this world pull at us so that we are tempted to be loyal to the earthly instead of the heavenly. We are tempted to, to love what God has created over God himself. And so that's why we're warned not as unbelievers, but as believers to love not the world, 1 John 2, 15 and 16, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, telling us the things of this world compete with our heart with God. I said to, to a number of people in recent days, including the message in the jail last night, we, we think of idols and we think of a shrine maybe over in, in Burma or in some uh, far eastern country and we see a, maybe a, a Buddha or we see some temple set up to some false god and you think of some golden image there, and certainly that's idolatry. What that is is a little bit more honest idolatry. But our gold and silver, our idols of wood and stone and gold and silver are generally either square or rectangle with a roof on them or they have four tires on them. It's truth. It's truth. People have invested their entire lives to live in their shrine. They will give themselves to obtain the money that will build their dream house, the kind of devotion they would never give to serving God. They would never give the hours of a week that it's taken to build that shrine to serve the Lord, to give the word of God to someone else, to spend time in prayer and worship of the Lord, in, in developing into the holy, godly person. The, the level of number of hours it takes to obtain the kind of wealth, to obtain the gods we want what we think will give us security for the future, what we think will satisfy the longings of our heart. When we give our heart to think that things will satisfy our soul, things will protect us, things will secure us, it is a, it is a level of idolatry. It's why we covet. We think, I'm unhappy. And the reason I'm unhappy, the reason I'm unsatisfied is I don't own one of those. It's idolatry. 
The reason I don't, I feel fearful is because what the circumstance I'm living in, whether my home or the income that we have, makes me fearful that we're not going to be able to pay our bills and makes me fearful we're not going to be able to meet our, our obligations. And so I can't feel secure until we have more money. And to have more money, I've got to give more of my life to obtain that. And many times idolatry is present. We don't really see it because in our country it's just more subtle. But it's still idolatry. When we will give our lives to obtain what we believe will secure us or what we believe, this is why the Word of God can't take root in a heart where there's so many thorns. The cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, uh, the pleasures of this life. So Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 10, the Bible says of the Levites, and the Levites that are gone away far from me when Israel went astray, which went astray from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. Let's just do another theological question. Is it possible for a child of God to get caught up in idolatry? It has to be because God's children are warned to keep ourselves from it. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You know what an idol is? Anything in our life that replaces the place that God's supposed to have. Anything that I'm looking for and trusting in to deliver me, to satisfy me, other than the Lord, the thing that, that I love greater than God. And so then, the Bible says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When we set our affection on earthly things, you know what we're going to have to do to obtain those earthly things? You see, because God's affection is not on earthly things. God is not concerned whether or not you and I die rich. No, he's really not. We can read our Bible cover to cover. He's made some people rich, others were poor. God is not concerned with how many earthly goods I obtain in this life. He is concerned with how I use them, no doubt. He is concerned with what I do with them. But the fact of the matter is, when I make earthly things the, 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 the object of my affection, desire, and trust... I'm going to have to leave the will of God because that's not his objective for my life. God's, God is not going to lead me in a way that is going to uh, allow me to think that my money secures me or satisfies me. He wants his way is going to cause me to trust him. Trust him to, to meet my needs. Trust him to satisfy my soul. Trust him to direct my steps. And so when I make earthly things the source of or the object of my affection... God's will is going to say, go this way. I say, but Lord, if I do things your way, I cannot obtain the things I want. And idolatry causes us to go astray. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. We have a lot of truly saved people in our country today that are unfaithful to the will of God in their life because they've made things of earth their objective, their, the source of their affection, and there's not one of us that aren't prone to that. And so then the cause of going astray, well, it's inherent in our nature, so it's part of that old nature that has to be crucified with Christ. We have to be reckoned to be dead, so we're not just serving our impulses, right? It's our impulse, but you and I as Christians don't live according to our impulse. We live according to the will of God. Idolatry, the love of things, earthly things, will cause us to go astray. What was it that Balaam went astray after? And I don't believe Balaam was a believer. Don't misunderstand me, but it was money. He loved the wages of unrighteousness, and he ran after that. All right, thirdly, not only our inherent nature, but here, idolatry appeals to that inherent nature, right? Immorality causes us to go astray. 
Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, the context of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 deals much with the strange woman. She is certainly immoral, and she is the symbol of immorality. Proverbs chapter 5, uh, verse 23. One of the things that troubles me, and it ought to trouble you as a Christian, is knowing that the kind of woman that is described in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, she is described with how she uses her words, how she uh, conducts herself, uh, how she behaves, how she adorns herself, Many a woman today that claims to be a Christian fits the description of the woman found in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. And that should be deeply troubling to us. That's an indictment both on men and women at the same time because this is written with men in mind and yet there's a warning about how the strange woman who is certainly, there are people who fit this prototype, but she is a, she is a portrait, first of all, of immorality Second of all, she is a portrait of what comes along with idolatry. I believe you can apply the truths that practically are here about the strange woman to false religion. And they fit. You know what the strange woman will do? She will tell you what you want to hear. She's a flatterer. False religion will flatter you. It's a flattering thing. It is very beautiful to look at. It's appealing to the eye and so forth. But the practical application is here... Young men are warned not to go astray by following the impulses of their flesh, right? That natural desire that is is appealed to by the strange woman. Proverbs 5.22 says, His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. Verse 23, He shall die without instruction, and in the greatness of his folly uh, he shall go astray. The warnings prior to that are about being unfaithful to your marriage vows uh, because of a strange woman. Uh, Verses 15 through 21, we're not going to read, but the idea is that's what causes someone to go astray. Look at Proverbs chapter 7. Again, all of Proverbs 7 except for the first few verses is about the strange woman and her seductive powers over a simple young man going on his way. And so then uh, the, 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 the allure of immorality causes so many to go astray. Proverbs chapter 7, uh, verse 24. Hearken unto me now therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not, what? Astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many. What kind of men? Strong men. Not weak men. Strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell going down to the chambers of death. I read this to men yesterday. I said, for those who think the Bible is hard to understand, they need to read those verses. It's not hard to understand. May I say this? We're in an age where the kind of woman described in Proverbs chapter 7 is available on every corner, on every screen, any place you want to find her. And you know what the net result is? She leads people astray. How many men have been godly men, good men, even preachers of God's word. And today they're out of church, they're drinking alcohol. And you know where it started? Right here. Strange woman. Not saying no to the lust of the flesh. Young men, listen to me tonight. Uh, you listen. If you don't want your life to end in ruins, you better figure out how to respond to a strange woman. Not look at her, look away from her. Don't go her way. She is, a, she is bait from Satan himself to pull you off the path of righteousness. That's what the Word of God is saying. And so then, it's inherent in our nature. That's why idolatry causes us to go astray. 
immorality causes us to go astray. This one saddens my heart, and we can see this in our day. Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. How many of you have heard in recent days, and if you're not hearing internet uh, vernacular, you might not have heard this, but how many have heard the term an influencer? Now, I want to be an influencer. Here, people, I want to start a blog because I want to be an influencer. Everybody is an influencer, by the way. Hey, we all have some influence. We need to be wise in how we spend it. But here, I'm going to use the word influencers. I don't necessarily mean it in our current vernacular. I mean it in the way it's given in the context of Scripture. Sometimes people have gone astray because those who are, that were entrusted with shepherding them led them astray, meaning a parent, a teacher, a pastor, preacher actually directed you to go the way they were going and that's what took place in jeremiah's day jeremiah chapter 50 verse uh, 6 my people hath been lost sheep notice what it says their shepherds have caused them to go astray they have turned them away on the mountains they have gone from mountain to hill they have forgotten their resting place if you study the rest of the context of especially the Old Testament prophets, that gone from mountain to hill, they were worshiping idols in the high places. And so what happens is today we have shepherds leading sheep astray. If you have shepherds who are idolatrous and immoral, guess where they're going to lead their sheep? And it saddens me today. There are some people who are astray because someone, an authority in their life, a spiritual authority, that was entrusted with leading them in the right way, led them in the wrong way. These are all specific examples of why people go astray. I'm sure there are more, but they pretty much they pretty much hit the points that we see most exemplified, I think. Number one, it's inherent in our nature. No one has to tell us. We don't need a, a bad shepherd to go astray. We can do that on our own. But you know, I believe this. There are, there are people who've been given horrid advice by pastors and teachers in their life. If you have a pastor in your life that, that tells you the sin you're going to commit is okay, you know what that tells you? I understand that pastor is not the Bible. I understand his word is not authoritative, but it gives you a sense that there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. I was Brother Norton last night, last week, and this, this week, and he said in the military, he said he knew specifically of certain chaplains when men would come to them and say, I'm having marriage troubles, would literally counsel these men Go have an affair. It will, it will spice up your marriage. Those are shepherds leading people astray. May I say this? As a pastor, I can tell you there's a temptation to tell people the answer they're looking for. Why? Because I want people to like me. I mean, that's, that's my natural tendency. But we have a responsibility not to tell you the path you're taking is good if it's not. And there are times that our pastors and teachers, and I, we need to be careful. Don't, don't, don't go on one of these bitter diatribes living the rest of your life surrounding how somebody who is supposed to care for you hurt you. There are people living out their lives in bitterness today, and all they can think of is, I was wounded in this situation, and now I'll never trust another. That's terrible. That You are letting sin rule your life when you do that. We have a good shepherd, and we'll get to him here in just a moment. But the fact is, it is entirely possible for people who've been given a responsibility from God to use their influence to lead us out of the path of righteousness and into a path of sin. 
I've experienced it in my own life. Someone who was not necessarily a teacher or pastor, but an elder in my life and encouraged me to hide things from my parents, to disobey them, and if I ever needed help, I could run to them for encouragement. And this is someone who claimed to be a Christian, supposed to have loved me and told me to do what was right. And I knew if I ever was in disobedience and I needed someone to be hide behind, this adult in my life could provide that for me. May I say this, God, God is, that's not going to go well for that person when they, when they deal with the Lord. And so the cause, we go astray because it's inherent in our nature. Idolatry is a lure. Immorality is a lure. Influencers in our life often lead us off the right path or can in our life uh, to go astray. Number two, the cost of going astray. We're going to take long on this point because they are, they are, we've already read Proverbs chapter 7. We've talked about how in idolatry the Lord said that the Levites were far from him. When we go astray, it creates distance between us and God. Distance, meaning he's over here. This is where I want you to be. I want you to be pure. I want you to be holy. I want you to be truthful. I want you to be generous. I want you to be kind. I want you to be forgiving. I want you to be uh, trustworthy. I want you to be separated. And we're over here saying, but I... You know, I have, I've had to be dishonest or I was going to lose my job. I've had to be a little immoral because I just can't help myself. I, I've had to be this. We're way over here. We are at odds with God. Even as his children, he's got one mind. He has a judgment concerning some action in our life. We are in a completely different disposition about it, in need of repentance. It's where the Lord Jesus found a number of his churches in Revelation 2 and 3. He said, especially we find the Laodicean church, they're way over here. Their view is, we're great. His view is, you're terrible. There was distance in the, in the mental disposition and the judgment and all these things. The cost is... Straying distances us from God. It breaks for the unbeliever. There's a distance that can only be gapped by the cross of Christ for you and I. We're not distanced in the sense we're not in the family. You and I both know that you can be in the family and out of fellowship at odds with, with your Savior. We see it exemplified in Peter when the Lord Jesus said, you're going to deny me tonight. He said, no, I'm not. May I say Peter was already astray? He was not simply following his shepherd. He was, he was at odds with him. And so James chapter 4, the Bible talks about in verse 6 uh, through 8, we are to humble ourselves on the, in the sight of the Lord. He gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Let me read it. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, meaning his way is right, and if we're not where he's at in our in our judgment, in our thinking, in our walk, in our obedience, then we need to submit to him. His way is the one that's right. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, meaning your disobedience has distanced you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Uh, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. I just want to read those verses, and that it's possible for a child of God to be distant from God through disobedience, distant from him. And so it causes distance from God. It causes devastation of life. We read in Proverbs 5, 6, 5, and 7 the outcome. Now, you and I, again, we both know you can go astray in immorality as a Christian, and you are not going to lose your salvation, but you may lose your life physically. What results in spiritual and eternal death for the 
unbeliever may result in the chastening hand of God, even at its extreme. We don't read about much in the Bible. The Bible says there is a sin unto death. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says there were those who partook of the Lord's table unworthily, meaning they were pretentiously saying, I'm in fellowship with the Savior when they were living in disobedience. They were saying, I'm on course when they were actually astray and didn't reconcile with God. And the Bible says some are sick and some are sleeping. And I don't take time to read it, but the very context of that is not about unbelievers. It said that that, that chastisement, that judgment from God is that, you're, that to save the soul in the day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 5, along the same lines, to where there is a point where, and 1 Corinthians 5 has everything to do with immorality. Man had to be turned over Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his soul may be saved in the day of judgment, or spirit saved in the day of judgment. The idea would be, Sin brings devastation. It brings eternal devastation to the unbeliever. It brings momentary devastation to the believer and loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So sin always brings devastation. So the cost is distance from God, devastation of life, and ultimately destruction. And so going astray, here's it. God's way is a path of life. Anything outside of that is devastation and destruction. Anything outside of God's will for our life is going to bring devastation and destruction. And so when we go astray, there's a, there's a price tag for going astray. Now, here's the wonderful thing. He says, it scares me as a Christian, but whom the Lord loveth he. Is he really going to let me just stray off and destroy myself without trying to get my attention? No way. Remember, that's what he saved you from. He's not going to let you go so far as to ultimately get away from him. He's going to get you. But even so, how many would say, I would rather my life be without the pain of chastisement than with it. Now, we all have to have chastisement because it is our nature to stray, and he gave us a new nature. And by the new nature, he says, no, no, we don't stray anymore. You used to do that, but now you're mine. So that brings us finally to our, our third point, the correction. The cost is high, distance from God, devastation of life. Ultimately, there's destruction. But the correction is God cares for us. Remember the Lord said in Luke 19:10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You were lost when he found you, and he'll never lose you again. Do you know what? The chastening of the Lord should be a tremendously comforting doctrine to us as God's children. It should comfort us. That's its intent, that God's not going to let you get back where you used to be without intervening in your life. That's why it says if you're without chastisement, you're not a son. If you can run hard from God and Him never interrupt your running, something... Ask something. Give me an Old Testament example of someone who strayed from God's will. Someone comes to my mind immediately. What would you say? Jonah, absolutely. How long and far could he stray without God intervening? Not far. But you find other people in the Old Testament, and they strayed all the way into hell. Balaam strayed from God's way all the way to hell. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates Balaam was a saved man, as far as I can tell. He's an apostate in the book of Jude. Apostates are not saved people. So my point is this tonight. The correction of God, his care... Number one, he cared enough to leave heaven to come and rescue us when we were astray. He cared enough. I love Isaiah 53, 3, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone from uh, everyone to his... By the way, that is the definition of going astray. When you eat us, do our own thing instead of his way, our way. And we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Meaning he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's verses 4 and 5. So our straying cost him his life. 
but he lives, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We read Hebrews 12, 5, and 6 earlier. What does the Bible say is the, the comforting assurance of the child of God, and that is whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Don't despise the discomfort. Don't despise the shame of getting caught. Don't despise the pain that comes when you are straying from God. That is God at work in your life. When I stray and there's pain of conscience, when I stray and there's pain in my spirit and there's guilt and grief saying, man, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. That's the Holy Spirit of God dealing with us saying, no, 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 come back. Eh, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Rebuked is just verbal, is it not? Then it goes on to say, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That's pain in our life in response to our disobedience. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So our correction begins with his care for us. First Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Sometimes his care for us is, is manifest in, in giving us the, we're lacking wisdom and his care for us is seeing that he gives us wisdom when we ask. We are mourning over the loss of a loved one or the loss of something precious in our lives and he comforts us by another believer. Oh, our faith is waning and he sends someone to strengthen our faith or some thing to strengthen our faith in his word, answers a prayer, but his care is also seen in the affliction and pain in our life when we go astray. What would happen if he ultimately let us go astray and did not correct us? then we would lose our salvation. But he's promised to not let that happen. He cares enough to intervene in our life. So his his correction begins with his care. It is is interwoven with his counsels. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, meaning you're going astray and the word of God is going to say, that's not the right way. The printed word and the preached word are about getting us back on course, back on course, okay? And so then through his, uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All right, so the care of God for us, the counsels of God, uh, obviously the chastisement of God is encompassed in those. So we see his, the correction in our life in what he does, his care, his counsels, his correcting chastisement, but then we can see our correction in the cry that we find in Psalm 119, 176. Go back there if you would. Psalm 119, 176. David's response, uh, or the psalmist's response to his own going astray gives us a recipe for how we should respond when God in care is chastising us because we've gone astray. We have, we have begun to conduct ourselves in a way that is not pleasing in his sight. We have stepped out of his will that's defined by his word. We have let things into our lives. We are, the course of our life is no longer aiming at pleasing God. It's aimed at pleasing self. When I start living to please self, I'm going to get off course. His course is defined. Every course has an objective. And the objective at the end of our course is hearing from his mouth, well done. That's our objective. And so that's what keeps us on course. Will I hear well done for what I'm doing? Will I hear, is what I'm doing well, right? Uh, what I'm being and what I'm thinking and all those things. And so then listen to Psalm 119, 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. The first aspect of correction is what God does. 
God intervenes in the life of his children through chastisement, through rebuke, the rebuke and the reproof and the correcting of his counsels, the intervention in the circumstances of our life to bring pain in response to our disobedience and our straying, but then there's got to be a response to that in our lives. And so then what David says is, you're right, I, I have gone astray. What many do today who claim to be Christians is, I'm a child of God, and therefore I'm saved eternally, and it's impossible for me to go astray. So if it seems like I've gone astray, there's got to be a misinterpretation of Scripture somewhere. Mistranslation, misinterpretation, if, some, if it makes it look like I'm the one that did wrong, then obviously that's wrong. And we need to have a heart like the psalmist here. The course was right. The path was right. I left it. I have gone astray. It starts with acknowledgement on our part. What we would call Psalm 119, 176 is a prayer of repentance. I agree that God's way was right and the way I took was wrong. Now, if you and I have ever intended to go somewhere and we were on course and then along the line we begin to think, you know, I think, I think I could get to that same place, but if I went this way, it would be shorter. We gentlemen are notorious for this kind of thinking. I'll just own it. I know the map says, but I know by looking at it, I can get there from here. I'm not stupid. I wasn't born yesterday. And we get way over here. If your wife's in the car, she says, honey, are, are, are we where we're supposed to be? Well, of course we are. It's where I brought us. Of course. How could you doubt my judgment? Right? What's, what's, you know as well as I, what's the first step to getting back on course? Acknowledging I'm off course and I'm the one that did it. Ownership of my own bad decisions. May I say this? The opposite of repentance is constant self-justification. Constant self-justification. Yes, it appears I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but that's just an illusion of my mind. I'm actually where exactly where I'm supposed to be when God's word and God's chastisement in our life are telling us something different. And so then, the first step is on our part. God cares enough to intervene and chasten and correct. He cared enough to come to heaven and be our Savior. But if he is our Savior, then he's going to chasten and counsel us as to how to get back on course. Our response, our cry if you would, as the psalmist would be, number one would be that of acknowledgement. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. That's a very humbling thing to admit it. I'm like a sheep, but it's truth, okay? Number two, there should be an appeal in that. Seek thy servant. What is he saying? I'm the sheep, you're the shepherd. I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but I don't know how to get back where I'm supposed to be. What is the key to a lost sheep getting back where he's supposed to be? Hanging over the side of a bluff with a broken leg is not where we're supposed to be. What's the key? Does he just get back up and try to chart his way again? Cry out to the shepherd. You know what the shepherd does? He comes and finds you and he brings you back. The way is him. It's not some path of intellectual understanding. It is, it is faith in the one who has the power to get me back where I'm supposed to be. If I'm off course, I got me off course. But if I'm going to get on course, who's going to get me there? The good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It means this, I'm going to trust my shepherd to lead me back to where I'm supposed to be. I've been here in my Christian life. I knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be, but I could not intellectually figure out how to get back on course. The mangled path of how I got to where I was was too confusing to figure it back and retrace my steps. You know what I did? I cried out to my shepherd. And I acknowledged him, I know I'm not where I'm supposed to be, and I ask you to forgive me for getting here. But I'm willing to follow you if you'll come and get me back where I'm supposed to be. 
You know what? That should be our heart. Lord, I'm off course, but I want to be on course. Seek thy servant. For I do not forget that commandment. It seems to me that final statement is, I remember what you said. I know you were right. I remember what you told me, and that's obviously not what I did. So I'm acknowledging I'm the one broke the commandments. I'm the one that got out of bounds. And I'm acknowledging I remember what you said, but I need you to rescue me. Remember what we heard all week, Monday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday? It's a life of faith, faith in him, faith in him. And so then the correction is acknowledging I'm the one that erred. You're the one that can rescue me. But then you know what we have to do? Finally, we have to adjust ourselves to his leadership. Go back to Hebrews 12. We have to adjust to his leadership in our life. How many of you remember what the path of our Savior is called? It's, it's got some adjectives that describe it. It is what? Straight and narrow. Now, there are people today who claim to be Christians that are all bent out of shape over governing guidelines, standards. You, you, you'd call it what you want. Can I tell you why I have certain standards in my life? I don't believe I have any one standard, meaning I won't do that, I won't watch that, I won't listen. That has nothing to do with thinking that makes me righteous. Nothing. There are certain things I'm not going to put on a screen in front of me, not because I think it makes me righteous not to, but I know where it's going to lead me if I let it happen. I know. I know I'll go astray. There are certain music I cannot listen to because I know where it takes me. And it's not taking me closer to my Lord, it's taking me astray. You know what it means to make straight paths for your feet? You get paths for your feet that are directly aimed at obedience to your shepherd and don't you make exceptions to the right hand or the left. Straight means defined, even narrow. The word straight, when we look at the definition, means right, R-I-G-H-T, right. How many of you ever made a right angle? The right angle is, it is absolutely perpendicular to this, meaning if this is the wrong way, don't lean toward it. You go straight, directly toward your point, and that's the Lord's leadership in our life. And so then when we start deviating, yes, I know this is what God says he wants, but would a little bit off to the side of what he said be okay? I know the Lord said, lie not one to another, but aren't there some occasions where it's okay to do that? I make straight paths for our feet. I know the Lord says, set no wicked thing before thine, mine eyes, but, I mean, look at the world we live in. Isn't that, you see what, see what we do? No, straight paths, meaning no, no exceptions that deviate from his will for our life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse uh, 12, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, meaning people are, they're, they're weary from chastisement. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know what, those of you who are not astray, strengthen those that have been, help them get on their feet. Help encourage. And may I say this, sometimes there's governance and guidelines, not because we think you get saved by governance and guidelines, but you're going to stay on course by them. I want to tell you something. There are people, their only standard is to preach against standards. You look out for that bunch. You know what they're trying to say? It's okay for you to go astray. We have standards in our life to help us stay on the course of his will. I know if I go over here, and I know if I go over here where it's going to lead me. So then, lift up the hands you know, that, which hang down and the feeble knees and make what kind of paths for your feet? Straight paths for your feet. Why? Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. Isn't that going astray? 
How many of you know that when people get saved, often they're lame? They're limping from being wounded by sin. Yeah. How many times are people maybe lame because of the chastisement of God? Because sometimes we get people that come around here and they're weak spiritually. And sometimes some people's liberty is the source of their stumbling. Well, as a Christian, I don't go to heaven by the way I talk or what I watch or where I go or what I wear. I can do that. I wish godly people would understand many times what sinners are struggling with. They're lame. And the liberty exercised in one person's life brings about the fall in another person's life. I have a right. No, our responsibility is to look out for those that are lame, that are wounded. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. In staying on course instead of getting back off course, there's healing for them in that. And so the point would be, and that's a broad commandment, that means we make straight paths for our feet. The one that has been astray makes straight paths for his feet. We're to help them stay straight, meaning not to the right hand or left. That word straight there means this. Uh, it means um, right in a mathematical sense. So a 90 degree angle, right, like a right angle. Direct, passing from one point to another by the nearest course. Not deviating or crooked as a straight line, a straight course, a straight piece of timber, a narrow, close, tight, upright, according with justice and rectitude, not deviating from truth or fairness. And sometimes we're, as God-fearing people and Bible-believing Christians, accused of being narrow-minded, straight-laced. Amen? Amen. Why? Because the objective of our life is His will, not our way. Amen. We get in trouble with the Lord when we get out of His will. And so you know what we need to do? Make straight paths for our feet. Make sure... I hear all the time the word balance today. I don't like it. We find the word balance in the Bible. It's not always used wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But a lot of times in our vernacular today in church, balance means... Let's strike, let's strike a compromise between the liberals and the conservatives. Let's stay balanced. Let's not get in the ditches. No, let's don't get in the ditches. How do you and I stay straight? That's the word. Proverbs 4 says the same. Let your eyes look straight on, look right ahead. The way you and I stay straight is not by focusing where the people on the right are or the people on the left are, but focusing on the voice of our master. When we know where he's at, Take the straightest line between where you are and where he is to get where he wants you to be. Don't delay. Don't turn this way or that way. Let's not make excuses and exceptions for his will in our life. It's what the Lord said. That's what we're going to do. Straight paths. Amen. Boy, you want a Bible study, go meditate on that one for a bit. Straight paths for our feet. I encourage you, cross-reference that with Proverbs chapter 4, uh, not look, turning to the right hand or to the left. May we know tonight our objective as Christians, because we're living by faith, is his word, is our will. And if we have strayed from that, he'll chasten us. He'll get us back where we need to be. But when he does, make straight paths for your feet. Don't make a path that deviates from what you know to be the will of God.